This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Very good afternoon to you. A rare treat for you this afternoon. It is not every day that you get an update on the Chinese wheat crop, but today is that day. Now, you usually only hear how great things are going, the crop's really good, there's nothing to see here. But Beijing is now saying it could be the worst crop ever, and it is handing out the cash to local farmers for fertiliser, for pest management, anything really, just to get the best possible yield out of their wheat crop. An update on that for you shortly here on the Country Hour. And today you're going to hear the latest on carbon farming. And if you are one of those people who are really keen to get on board, well, I am sorry. I've got some bad news for you today. Firstly, carbon prices have just dropped by more than 30%. You'll find out why shortly. And secondly, a renowned Australian climate challenge professor is warning a lot of Western Australia's farmers not to get involved in carbon markets. Sandy soils don't hold carbon. So you might do well to move up a percentage in soil carbon, but because most of it is subject to rainfall, all you need is a change in the Indian Ocean Dipole or the Southern Oscillation Index, and suddenly you go into a dry period and that's all gone. That's Professor Richard Eckhard, who leads Melbourne University's Primary Industries Climate Challenge Centre, and you will hear from him in more detail just after the news headlines at half past 12 today. Six past 12 here on the ABC right across Western Australia. Imagine scooping 77 mice out of your swimming pool. Well, that is what happened at the Pluskies' place. They're on a farm near Northampton in the Midwest. Andrew Plusky says cleaning up dead bodies from around the yard and sheds is a daily task. They seem to be everywhere, out in the paddocks, around the sheds, around the house. Yeah, don't seem to be getting any less. You're having to control, what, pretty much every day now? What, what are you doing? Uh, I just spread a bit of mouse off with a little garden spreader around the sheds and the outside perimeter of the houses and, um, yeah, walk around in the morning and pick up as many dead ones as I can just to try and keep the smell away. Oh. And around the house, yeah, we have lots of traps and I don't really want dead mice in the house, but it's pretty hard to avoid. Everyone's getting sick of that horrible smell of dead mice. How many are you getting? When I first started, I'd probably pick up about 100 around the sheds and that, but, yeah, now I'm down to about, you know, anywhere between 20 and 30. And that's all the ones I find. Like, there's obviously a lot that are dying in their holes and places that you can't see them. So that's each day for, for what, almost two months now? Pretty well, yep. And in the pool? What did you find? What are you finding in the pool? Oh, the first... Hot day, yeah, I picked out 77, I think, that had fallen in the pool in one night, but that sort of dwindled down, but still getting four or five each morning that are either swimming or dead in the pool. Northampton mixed farmer Andrew Plusky with Lucinda Jose. So how are the mouse numbers at your place? Are you seeing more than usual? Can you let me know what's going on at your place? What have you seen on the text 0448 
922604. And if you want to take a look at some of the photos of those mice in Andrew Plusky's pool, just head along to the ABC Midwest and Wheatbelt Facebook page and just having a look through some of the comments there. After looking at those photos, Roz pretty much sums it up. She says, ew. And then Tash in Karoo says she got 52 mice in just over a week recently. And Alan, who's also in Northampton, says he got 276 mice in seven nights, giving us a total of over 855 over four weeks. Check out those photos on the ABC Midwest and Wheatbelt Facebook page. Nine past 12. Well, numbers seem to have built up in the grain growing areas from the northern ag region all the way down to hotspots in Esperance. And about a month or less out from seeding, that is a worry for farmers. Elders agronomist Peter Elliott Lockhart has been fielding mice questions from Dalwollenew to Banu. He says at this point of the season, it's hard to predict what will bring the numbers down. One of the problems that we face, I think, at the moment is what's a natural population? What are we? What's a normal amount of mice to be seeing and what's abnormal? Certainly, I think around my house and sheds, I've got abnormal amounts of mice. I don't normally see them this bad. So, uh, but And reports are there are growers around that are having significant issues. So I think it's certainly worth monitoring those paddocks as we get closer to seeding. Spending a bit more time having a good look and figuring out what levels you've got, especially if you're, they're going to go into those sensitive, more sensitive crops like canola and lupins and things like that. So we, we're going to call it an abnormal amount, are we? Well, a larger amount than average. <laughs> they were bad before harvest last year. Why are they a problem now? Well, I think they're searching for water mainly, so they're sort of congregating around houses and sheds, which is where we generally have a lot more of that freestanding water. You know, in sheds, they're generally just chewing on wiring and probably causing problems. So uh, they're a carryover from last year. I don't think we've had conditions that are going to knock them around too much. A lot of guys are asking questions about burning and things like that. You know, their their burrows are quite deep, so a red-hot burn over the top of a paddock is going to take their food source away, but I don't know that it's actually going to do a lot for the mice sitting in the burrow. If he happens to be on the surface, he might be in a bit of trouble, but if he's in his burrow, he's probably okay. We're about a month away from seeding. Is it a worry? Uh, certainly if you're going to dry seed canola, it's a sensitive crop. The mice might have an opportunity to dig up seeds and, and do some things like that. My uh, sort of recommendation to most guys is have a good look at those paddocks and see where you think the mice are. Maybe put some cards out before you start seeding and see how much are getting chewed. If we seed, we'll take away a fair bit of that food source for them because it'll get buried. And that's probably a good time to, to put your bait out is immediately after you've sown because then you get maximum exposure to, to the bait and hopefully maximum kill rates. It's going to sort of depend. If it's dry seeding, you've got a bit of time to get the, the bait out there. If the mice learn that the seed is buried and they start digging it up, then you've got less time because you want to make sure you get it before they do that. If it's wet seeding, then four or five days the crop will be out of the ground and that's when it's you know, potentially going to get nipped off and, and that's not a good thing for it. So you need to, to be a bit proactive about that. You mentioned um, wet and dry seeding. What sort of impact is, is rain going to have on the population of the mice? Uh, next question. <laughs> no idea. 
the expectation would be things will be more conducive to mice populations to grow once we've got some green on the ground and a bit of free water standing around in, in puddles and bits and pieces. So that would be my anticipated outcome is if we do get some rain then the mice populations will probably start to build up again. Elders agronomist Peter Elliott Lockhart speaking to Lucinda Jose. What is the mouse story at your place Shoot it through on the text 0448922604. Michael says back in 1984 on a Greyhound bus from Wyala to Port Lincoln, there was a sea of mice for 20 kilometres and the bus kept on going. Squashed mice tracks, billions of them, says Michael. That is an awful visual. 0448922604 to text through with your story. 13 past 12. If you're in the shires of Nanup or Manjimup and you're just waiting to hear the latest on that fire that's currently at a watch and act alert level, uh, keep listening because in about five or six minutes, Rich and Hudson will come into the studio and give you the very latest details on that situation. 14 past 12. Overseas now, where Chinese authorities are saying this year's wheat crop could be the worst ever. Now, the update has come as quite a surprise because Beijing rarely, if ever, admits there are any sort of problems. Head of Strategy at Market Check, Nick Crundle, says the admission confirms earlier concerns about the crop. The crop, which was planted sort of mid to late last year, was delayed. They had some issues getting in. So there was some expectations that it wouldn't be as good as that otherwise could be. Yeah, as I said, to have it broadcast by the authorities over there is, is a sort of rare step out of line out of those guys. And not only did they step out of line and, and make a rare comment about how bad it was, be, they said it could be the worst ever. Yeah, that's right. And, and if you look at the production out of China, it's unusually stable, which you can take out of what you will uh, in terms of the data that flows out of China. But yeah, they, they basically come out, as you said, and said it's going to be, um, you know, as bad as it's been. And now they're trying to basically put some policies or do what they can to try and improve the situation, which has been the newer news in the last couple of days. What have they come out to say? They're going to throw some money at it and a lot of money at it. Yeah, so they're going to throw 1.6 billion yen, which is 250 million US dollars, at basically trying to incentivise growers to increase output as much as possible. So the crops come off in a few months, around May, June. This cash will be sort of used to incentivise to use more fertiliser to help manage or help growers over there, basically manage pests and disease better and just incentivise the grower community in China to do what they can to basically get as big a yield as possible. So it's it's an interesting one and, and, and not, you know, Throwing money at something that a lot of the time you can't control is tough, but uh, they're obviously really trying to incentivise growers over there to, to get the fertiliser on and trying to get as much out of this crop as they possibly can. And we've heard a lot about the improvement in the technology in terms of in the Baltic states and growing of wheat and that sort of thing. They're using a lot more of the latest technology. Are they doing that in China or is China still still behind? Are they still not as sophisticated in their in their agronomy? Still very basic relative to everyone else. It's one of the key objectives of the Chinese authorities now and going forward. It's, it's sort of priority number one over there to try and shore up 
self-sufficiency in, in grain supply. They don't have to rely on the outside world for basic staple crops. They're trying to improve economics of farming and the efficiencies. A lot of it's still done on very small plots by you know very basic means. So they're very much behind the eight ball when it comes to what we've seen out of the Baltic states, what we've seen out of, say, Russia, where they've seen a huge increase in their growing capacity and proficiency to get yield out of, out of their crop. China is sort of still behind the eight ball on that, on that regard. And food security for them would be a big issue. So they're trying to make sure they, they're throwing money at it to make sure they don't have an undersupply of wheat. That's right. So there's two ways they're going about it. One is trying to change the cultural norm of food waste. It's something that Xi Jinping has been quite vocal about is trying to reduce the amount of food waste out of China. So that's one angle they're going. And then yeah, the other one is to increase production out of China. And by doing, by, to do that is to increase the economic incentive for growers to, to increase their production so that they don't have to rely on on places like Australia and, and America for that grain. And, and I suppose China being such a big export destination for us, you know, it does work in our favour when they need to come to the world market. So it's something to, to keep an eye on, at least for a longer term perspective. Absolutely, big sister. They don't buy our barley, but they've still been buying our wheat. And it looks as if they might need to again this year as well, because, it, uh, I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't auger well for a big Chinese crop, does it? They've already taken two, a bit over 2 million tonnes of Australian wheat from October through Jan. I, they'll, they'll probably surpass 5 million this year. So they're a massive part of our... That's out of exports of 25, 28 million tonnes. So they're a huge part of our export program. They're not taking our barley, but stranger things have happened. The, the world's certainly a different place than it was when the tariffs were put in place against Australian barley. So I think the odds of them including Australian barley back into their import program is increasing as the likes of war and, and poor crops over there uh, sort of keep developing. But Xi Jinping wouldn't want to be paying the high price for wheat that's uh, certainly out there at the moment. That's right, and, and uh, it's, it's a key reason why they've been sort of more or less on the fence with this whole conflict over in Ukraine and Russia, because it doesn't bode well for them given that they are such a big importer of grains and the prices as everyone will know, have gone through the roof. So this is not an ideal situation for China and what's happening over in, uh, in the Ukraine. If they don't have food security, again, that can cause instability in the government too. Well, that's, it's, it's priority number, number one. They've absolutely got to make sure that food security is not even questioned. Because we saw regime change in places like Libya and Egypt and, and Syria when they ran out of food. That's right, yeah. As I said, it's, uh, it's, it's a huge priority of, of the Chinese government to make sure that that exact situation doesn't happen in China and, and that food security is not. And, you know, they've got a, a history of, of famine. You know, there's been famines in China and, and I suppose it's going to be absolutely the, the top priority to make sure that they're not caught in that situation irrespective of what's happening around the world. Nick Crundle, he's Head of Strategy at Market Check, talking to Michael Condon. And wasn't it interesting just to hear his thoughts around, you know, we know the world has changed now with what's going on in Ukraine and that might have a flow-on effect to China's decision to take Australian barley going forward. One to watch for sure. 20 past 12 here on The Country Hour. 
ABC Radio, bushfire information. Yes, a bushfire watching act is still in place in the shires of Nanup and Manjimup. So it's for Donnelly River North to Scott Road, west of Vass Highway and north of Ritter Road. The watching act is in place for people in the vicinity of Donnelly River, including the Donnelly River Huts and Boat Landing Road from Scott Road in the north to Vass Highway and Ritter Road in the Shire of Nanup and the Shire of Manjimup. There is still a possible threat to lives and homes as a fire is approaching and conditions are changing. The fire started near the intersection of Fly, Brook Road and Ritter Road. If you are not prepared uh, or you plan to leave, leave now if the way is clear. If you are well prepared and you plan to actively defend your home, make final preparations now. If you plan to stay and actively defend, please don't rely on mains water pressure as it could be affected. You need to have access to an independent water supply and start patrolling your property to put out spot fires. If you're not at home, please don't try to return as conditions in the area could be very dangerous. The bushfire is moving slowly in a westerly direction. It is uncontained and uncontrolled. The safest route to get out of the area is via the Vass Highway. A number of roads have been closed, including Ritter Road from Old Vass Road to the coast. That's closed, and that includes access to Yigarup Beach. Calcup Road and Warren Beach Track are closed, and that includes access to Warren Beach. Donnelly Boat Landing Road, including the Donnelly River at Vass Highway, is closed. And also Black Point Road at Stewart Road, including Jangadup Road and Pneumonia Road. Access to those roads is permitted for local traffic only. Scott Road is also closed at Vass Highway and Woodaburrup Road, east of Black Point Road, is closed. You can find the latest road information by visiting the Main Roads website or calling 138 138 or by contacting your local shire. As far as national parks go, Warren National Park is closed. That includes Heartbreak Trail. Parts of John Tricasto National Park are closed between the Warren River and Black Point and the walking trail from Gloucester National Park to the Bicentennial Tree is closed. If you want more information on parks in that area, just go to the DBCA website. And for all information about any of the bushfires, not only this Watching Act, but some of the ones that are at an, an advice level, just do a search for emergency and WA and you'll get to the emergency WA website and it's very easy to follow. If you're not uh, able to get hold of a website, just call 13DFIST, so that's 133337. And, of course, keep listening to your ABC local radio. Your next update will be at quarter past one, unless the situation changes. Thanks for that, Richard. 24 past 12. You're with Belinda Varaschetti on the Country Hour on ABC local radio WA. News headlines not too far away. First up, though, the federal government is facing calls from within its own ranks to consider temporarily reducing the fuel excise so that you're not spending so much money at the petrol bowser. The fuel excise is a flat tax placed on fuel, and right now it's sitting at just over 44 cents per litre, which the government argues pays for road infrastructure and other key services. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been blamed for the spike in petrol prices from $1.70 a litre to well over $2 a litre. Trade Minister Dan Tian says reducing the excise is being considered to reduce cost of living pressures. 
An excise is basically a, a tax or a charge on, on fuel, uh, which goes into consolidated revenue. And what people are suggesting, and, and the government is obviously uh, listening to the feedback, is that uh, it would be very good if there, something could be done around the excise at the moment, given the price we're seeing of oil as a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. How does that look? Is it going to be a temporary freeze on the excise until until the situation calms down a little bit, or are we looking at a reduced excise? Uh, well, obviously, I'm not going to go into the deliberations in the lead-up to the budget, but obviously, uh, members of parliament are out and about. They understand what the impact of the rise in the oil price is having on agriculture and on, especially on regional and rural communities, and taking all that feedback and and looking at what those options might be. You mentioned the budget there, Minister. We are coming very close to an election now. Obviously, this budget is a key point before we hit the ballot boxes. These decisions are getting made now, though, aren't they? Uh, Obviously, there are deliberations being undertaken as we speak, as we frame uh, this year's budget, absolutely. And uh, we're uh, making sure that we're out consulting, looking at all the various policy options and framing this budget to address cost of living, uh, but also to ensure that our businesses, especially in regional and rural Australia, remain efficient, remain profitable, and that we're doing what we can to support them. So the money that is collected in the fuel excise, what kind of services does that offer Australians? Well, that goes into uh, various things, whether it be for, for, for record spending on aged care, record spending on education, on health, on infrastructure, roads, uh, it goes right across the board. So is there potentially uh, an issue here where, say, we do have a freeze or a reduction in the excise in the short term, actually having a long-term disadvantage in the budget? Uh, look, all, all those things obviously have to be taken into consideration. Uh, obviously, we want to make sure that we've got profitable businesses uh, that will pay tax and, and obviously provide revenue into the budget. So All these things we take advice from Treasury and Finance on, but ultimately what we want to be doing is putting the policies in place that grow the economy. And by growing the economy, you make sure that you can keep uh, your budget on a sustainable footing. We're obviously seeing inflation around the world at the moment, Minister. How concerned are you for Australia's economic uh, outlook considering that inflation? Well, the government um, continues to work very closely with the Reserve Bank on making sure uh, that CPI remains within the band, that uh, the RBA has its target, and we continue to make sure that the settings of our fiscal policy uh, is in line with what the Reserve Bank is doing on interest rates. Uh, so we continue to work very closely with them on that, and that's very, very important as we deal uh, with the inflationary pressures that we're starting to see uh, hit the globe. We've seen various industries throughout the last two years needing assistance from the government to continue working. Do you see that maybe the transport industry could potentially be the next one that needs a bit of help? Uh, look, we're obviously always working very closely with the transport industry What to do what we can to make it as efficient and as effective as we possibly can, including by putting record funding into roads. And everyone who lives in regional and rural Australia knows that roads are incredibly important, not only for our transport industries, but for everyone as they go about their way of life. 
Trade Minister Dan Tien with Jane McNaughton. The opposition leader, Anthony Albanese, was also asked if he would support a cut to the fuel excise and he didn't give a definitive answer. 28 past 12 and all this talk about the high cost of fuel has one regional freight operator thinking about long-term solutions and the need to transition to electric vehicles. Ron Crouch Transport specialises in carrying animal nutrition and rural supplies, canned foods, industrial and agricultural chemicals and automotive parts. Managing Director Jeff Crouch says these astronomical fuel prices should be a catalyst for real change. This current crisis really does show how reliant we are on the international supply of oil. And we've got to look at the bigger picture. You know, everyone's looking at just the situation we've got now. Let's have a look at what we could do. Let's look at where we should be in the as close as possible immediate future with electric vehicles. It's yeah. got something on those lines. That's got to be, this has got to be the wake-up call for Australia to focus on the future of fuel supply and relying on fossil fuels from overseas which reliant upon international tensions, reliant upon international shipping lanes, can't be our future. But if you're talking about moving into electric vehicles, where do you think you are in the transport industry at the moment on a timeline of getting that accomplished? I mean, we're hearing that, you know, the, politically people are saying, well, you won't be able to buy a ute. I mean, what about buying a, a big, you know, multi-wheeler transport truck? Where's, where's the development of that technology up to? buy an electric ute now. So I, don't, I think that throws that argument right out of the window. You can buy an electric truck right now. There are quite a number of them in metropolitan areas running around doing deliveries for a lot of the major companies. But what we need is reform of the industry as far as infrastructure is concerned. We need to have more electric vehicle recharging facilities that are suitable for heavy vehicles. That's the, probably the easy one. But we also need to be able to have the necessary legislative guidelines to allow trucks which are heavy by nature and we've got very strict weight limits we have to abide by but batteries into heavy vehicles very very heavy so it's uneconomical in other respects to have an electric truck because of the less weight you can carry on there that can be fixed by legislative change with the various jurisdictions so there are ways to get around that but uh, look, you know the interesting stat that I know fans is that at the moment, if you're in North America, Europe and China, there's 58 electric truck models available for sale. In Australia, we only have 14. The future is there. The end is in sight to be able to end this endless reliance upon fossil fuels. Is it going to be there in a year or two years or three years' time? No. But that doesn't mean to say we can't really start to ramp up the change we need to have to be able to adopt electric vehicles in the, in the vehicle industry and make some real change. And if we do that... We can be reliant upon Australia's electricity supply, not the international supply of oil. Jeff Crouch from Ron Crouch Transport speaking to Sally Bryant. This on the text, the electric vehicles need to start paying for roads too. No excise on EV at the moment. The text is 0448 922 604 to have your say. 28 to 1 with an update from the ABC Newsroom now. Here's Herlin Kaur.
afternoon. WA has today reported 4,037 new COVID-19 cases. The health department says there are currently 109 people in hospital with the virus, one of them in intensive care. WA currently has 25,775 active cases. Russia has expanded its offensive to western Ukraine after a barrage of missiles hit a military base near the border with NATO member Poland. At least 35 people have been killed when more than 30 cruise missiles were fired at the Yavorov military range just 25 kilometres from the Polish border. The training base appears to be the the most westward target struck so far in the 18-day invasion. And in the AFL West Coast, Coach Adam Simpson has refused to discuss forward Jack Darling's COVID-19 vaccination history or medical condition. The club announced on Friday that Darling would return to the Eagles after meeting all league requirements. Darling had missed a January deadline to receive his first shot of a coronavirus vaccine. And there'll be a full bulletin at one o'clock. Thank you, Helen. Appreciate that. 27 to 1 here on the Country Hour. And between now and the news bulletin at one o'clock today, off to Muche, Tracy Kilner having a look at the yarding and the prices at the Muche cattle market for you and also the very latest on carbon farming with a special look at carbon prices and also a warning to Western Australian farmers not to get involved in carbon markets. That's to come here on the Country Hour very shortly. Right now it is off to the Bureau of Meteorology and Steph Bond with you this afternoon. Steph, how's it looking across northern and eastern parts of Western Australia? Uh, afternoon, Bell. Over the northern and eastern parts, we currently have some active thunderstorms through the eastern parts of the South Interior, uh, and they they are moving into SA. But we do have a severe thunderstorm warning out for those, which may uh, produce some damaging wind gusts with gusts up to around ninety kilometres per hour. And those storms may extend through the rest of the South Interior um, and North Interior this afternoon. Uh, and through the Kimberley, we may see some thunderstorms develop this afternoon and we may see some damaging wind gusts up to 90k per hour uh, through the inland parts of the Kimberley this afternoon too. Over the next few days, uh, once those storms to the interior have cleared this afternoon, it's a very similar pattern. We'll see those thunderstorms through the Kimberley uh, and extending into just the coastal parts of the northeast Pilbara uh, for the next four days. Um, and the chance of some gusty storms through the northern parts of the Kimberley as well. Uh, We're not looking at a lot of precipitation, though, with those storms uh, for the next at least three days, uh, with just your average around 15 to 30 millimetres. Once we get to Friday, though, there's probably a greater chance that we do see uh, some higher precip totals up around 40 to maybe 50 millimetres with those storms through the Kimberley. Um, And then also on Friday, we do see those storms extending into the Pilbara region as well for the inland areas. Um, And we do have some some slightly uh, warmer temperatures just through the Pilbara for the next few days as well. And moving into the southwest land division, some cooler temperatures on the way this week compared to last week. Steph, any rain on the way too? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Those cooler temperatures are going to stick around for the majority of the week. Uh, maybe increasing a little bit on Thursday and Friday, uh, but only by a few degrees with a trough developing down the west coast. Uh, but back to uh, this afternoon, we uh, won't see any precipitation today. Uh, but for tomorrow, we do have a 
uh, trough uh, or wheat cold front skimming the far southwest of the southwest land division, where we may see some sh- light showers developing uh, along the west coast south of Perth, uh, but a little few more showers developing uh, along the southwest coastal district and also the south coastal district too. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Fly caught in my throat. Um, but we look, there probably won't be a lot of precipitation with those. Um, we're probably looking at around two to three millimetres along the south coast, maybe isolated, falls up to around five. There's a very, very, very slight chance of a thunderstorm south of a line from about Bunbury through to uh, Bremer Bay. But uh, that risk is actually reducing the closer we get to tomorrow. Uh, We are also looking at uh, some showers between uh, Bustleton and Albany on Wednesday morning, but very coastal and also uh, pretty light as well, just another two to five millimetres. Otherwise, the inland parts of the South Rest land division remain clear Uh, and that by Thursday that's all cleared out as we get that ridge developing with a high uh, moving into the bite and by Friday the trough along the west coast starts to move inland where we may get may get a late shower uh, along the southwest coast between Bunbury and Albany Um, but later over the weekend into the week there are signs another system uh, weak cold front may move through the southwest land division Uh, but that's still a very long way away and there is uh, quite a bit of uncertainty with that model guidance uh, in the longer term forecast. And Steph back to this afternoon any warnings? We do have that severe thunderstorm warning, as I mentioned, for the uh, south interior and the northern parts of the Eucla, uh, but those storms are moving into SA and we have no other marine warnings and also just a fire weather warning for parts in the Pilbara and uh, Exmouth Gulf region. Thanks so much for that, Steph. It's 22 to 1. Taking a look at the weekend rainfall now with Richard Hudson. Yeah, as usual, most of the rain was up in the Kimberley and the highest readings were Kununurra had between 17 and 29 mils across three locations. Mount Barnett topped it with 39 and Parry Creek Farm had 38. They were the highlights. For the rest of the state, we'll go to five and above. Some good rain in the Pilbara. Chela Plains, 21. Uh, Mount Florence, 5. Parabadu Airport, 7. And Wailu, 9. In the Gascoigne, Bulga Downs and Challa got 6 mils. Minina and Mount Gould, 5. Mount Clare, 8 mils. Three Rivers, 12. Nothing reported in the interior. But in the Goldfields, Edgardina and Kalgoorlie Boulder Airport received 7. And Cambelda West, 9. And then in the southwest, Land Division Forecast Districts, bit of rain around in the southwest. Bailing up 11. Dinan up 19. Donnybrook had 6 to 7 Mills, Ferguson Valley Alert Station 5, Hentybrook 7, Thompsonbrook 10 and Tonebridge 8 and then also a bit of rain around in the southern coastal region, Amalup 9, Bremer Bay 9, Chillin up 6, Denbarker 8, Denmark 5, Gardner 8, Nwanga up at the GRDC 8 mills, Inglebourne 9, Jake up 23, Lort River 7, Mount Barker, 8. Narrakup West, 10. Nyirill up, 16. Ongarup GRDC received 13. And Ongarup North topped it for the South West Land Division with 33 mils. Salmon Gums Research Station, 7. Stirling South, 10. Tolina Down, 6. Warrajarra, 8. And Wellstead, 5. And then in the Great Southern Region, Badgebup, 14. Boscobel, 9. Chaming Up, 8. Cherry Tree, 14. Cranham, 6. 
Culford 5, Franklin 9, Glenrose 16, Catanning had 14 to 18 mils across a number of locations, Cogenup 10, Magenta Dam 15, Newdigate Research Station had, well, Newdigate had between 11 and 12 in that area. Nibing East had 28 to 29 around the Nibing area, uh, Pingrup 10 to 21, Quail up 14, Riverdale 10, Wagen had 6 to 10 mils in that area, Wickerpin had 8 and less, and they're the only ones that are around 5 and above. Thanks for that, Richard. You're with Belinda Varischetti on The Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA. 19 to 1. This just through on the text regarding fuel prices. Once the prices are up there, they never go back to what was the norm, even after conflict overseas comes to an end. Look at the ad blue. We're back on track with that, and prices are still at $2.50 to $3 a litre, and it used to be 70 cents. Well, fuel, fuel prices are up. Carbon prices, on the other hand, have dropped by more than 30% off the back of a new policy announced by the federal government. Landholders or businesses will now be able to opt out of fixed carbon contracts with the government and enter the open market. Climate-friendly CEO Josh Harris explains why he thinks this will have a massive impact on the whole carbon market. The government buys about two-thirds of the carbon credits that are available in the carbon market in Australia. So with that change, they've effectively taken away two-thirds of of the demand, or the other way to think of it is they've added two-thirds of the overall market supply back into the market. And that has had a very short-term impact on the carbon price. What have we seen the carbon price do? It's dropped approximately a third. That happened pretty well within within the 24 hours of the announcement and, and it's still sitting at that range. So it went from about $47 down to $30. What the, the government announced was a consultation process on how that policy would actually be developed in detail and how it would be would be rolled out. So just to give you a couple of um, examples of who has been impacted by this, any landholder who started up a carbon farming project within the last couple of years would not have had a fixed contract with, with the government. And so that's, you know, there's about 400 landholders who have, have new projects. They were able to sell into the spot market or to the open market or into longer-term carbon offtakes. And because the price is now come down, they have lost under this policy. There's also landholders who had fixed carbon contracts with the government, but actually in good faith, they've delivered on those and they finished them. And they've, they've completed that term and now they're now able to sell into the open market. I guess it's less incentive for people who would w- look at getting into doing some carbon projects if that market does dip. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. And that's one of the unintended consequences here is that we need new carbon farming projects to help us on our path to net zero because we know people in the land sector are are a net sink of carbon. They're storing it in in trees and their soils and vegetation. And we need as many of these new projects as as possible to help us to hit net net zero. And with the, the fundamentals, the economic fundamentals of those projects now changed really very much overnight, it makes it harder to hit net zero, harder to, you know, decarbonise across the economy and and less incentive for landholders. In your opinion, why has the government done this? 
what the government was trying to do was was saying, look, a carbon price at 50 was quite a way away from the fixed contract average price of about $12. And they wanted to enable an orderly exit of landholders and businesses out of those lower price fixed contracts. But that's not what's happened when all of those contracts can get out of that volume at one point in time. That's, that's not necessarily an orderly release of that volume. Um, and that's why we're saying through this consultation process that the government should be looking at the overall first principle. First principles go back and look at the supply and demand dynamics and, and see what volume of those fixed contracts could be released into the open market with, without having such a material impact on price. Olivia Carver speaking to Climate Friendly Co-CEO Josh Harris. The Clean Energy Regulator says the large difference between fixed contract prices and secondary or open market prices was unsustainable. It says instead of a disorderly exit from fixed contracts, which could lead to disputes over failed deliveries, the new exit arrangement provides a measured an orderly transition from the fixed delivery contracts. The consultation period with landholders and carbon service providers starts from today. Quarter to one. Well, one of Australia's top climate experts is offering up another reason why carbon farming might not be a good idea in large parts of Western Australia. Professor Richard Eckhart leads Melbourne University's Primary Industries Climate Challenge Centre and he thinks there's no future for carbon farming on WA's sandy soils. So the past studies that we've been involved with have looked at long-term trials and looked at... Let me just find Professor Richard Eckhart for you. I would be wary of getting involved in carbon markets because... Sandy soils don't hold carbon. So you might do well to move up a percentage in soil carbon, but because most of it is subject to rainfall, all you need is a change in the Indian Ocean Dipole or the Southern Oscillation Index, and suddenly you go into a dry period and that's all gone. There's no risk with building soil organic matter because, yes, you have these fluctuations, but you have management in place that will bring it back. Whereas if you trade it on soil carbon markets, well, there's not a lot to trade in the first place. Secondly, it's subject to rainfall and you could lose it all and then be in a debt situation. So focus on the main game. Soil organic matter is what matters. Organic matter is composed of carbon, generally speaking. So explain to me the difference in how it is that we might separate the two or perhaps how they're conflated where maybe they shouldn't be. You're right. Soil organic matter is much more than just soil carbon. Soil carbon is 58% of soil organic matter. So all living material, all plants around you are around roughly half carbon. All trees are roughly half carbon. The same with soil organic matter. About half of it is made up of carbon. But if you want to say, well, what allows a soil to hold nitrogen? It's not carbon, it's organic matter. What allows a a soil to hold more water? That's the organic matter that holds the water. It's not the carbon fraction that holds the water. So a focus on soil carbon is actually less helpful than a focus on soil organic matter because it's where the cation exchange is conferred, where the nutrient recycling is conferred. It doesn't come out of soil carbon, it comes out of soil organic matter. Is there a case to be made that perhaps farmers should record their carbon just as a matter of course while going about their program in a way that builds organic matter? I think baselining your farm in terms of its soil organic matter or soil carbon is, is excellent. Yes, it should be done. 
So at least you know what you're dealing with. How you use that result, I would say it's more useful to say, well, I've got 2% soil organic matter and 1% of that is going to, be, going to become nitrogen in the next 12 months. So that gives you some idea of how much the soil organic matter will benefit your system. That's more how you would use it to say, what is the productivity potential of my soil as a result of having a better carbon result, not a lower carbon result. The notion that you can go and measure it on a regular basis, well, that would be wasting money. Anything less than five years, the error in our ability to actually measure soil carbon is greater than the change you would expect within at least two to three years. When I speak to regenerative folks in particular, they make the point that there is a capacity to change the composition of your soils. So when you say sandy soils can't hold carbon, they might counter to say that, well, it doesn't necessarily need to be the same sandy soil you had 10 years ago. Do you see that as, an, as a reasonable or manageable strategy? There's no doubt that management can have an influence. I'm, I'm on the record as saying 80% of soil carbon change in Australia is rainfall related. And I stick with that. But management can have an influence because there's still that 20% left that you could influence. So yes, more regenerative practices could make a difference. But you've got to remember that you need clay in the soil to hold large amounts of soil carbon. The difference they're talking about is on a sandy soil is going from one and a half to two percent soil carbon. They're not talking about going from one and a half to five percent soil carbon. You simply can't achieve that unless you've brought in clay. If that doesn't happen, well, you can do all the regenerative practices you'd like. You're only making 1% or 1.5% or it's small tweaks at the edge, which are valuable, but it's not the major jump that people are, are being led to believe it would be. What about other avenues to carbon markets? Do you think there's much merit to carbon forestry or carbon plantations or otherwise? Yeah, look, I, I think other carbon markets could be very valuable. There's a project that we're working on at the moment called Trees on Farm, which is looking at how do we value the productivity benefits of designing those trees more intelligently. So it's not a block of trees on the back of the farm where it's out of sight. It's actually, can we maximize the co-benefits of planting trees intelligently in the landscape so that we get the heat, shade, shelter, uh, loss of soil erosion benefits from planting the trees so we bank the benefits and then the carbon becomes the co-benefit. Then I think we're onto something. But if you put the carbon first, you'd be planting an intensive block of trees down the back of the farm that give you no co-benefits at all. You probably wouldn't recoup the lost productivity out of that land with the carbon income. Professor Richard Eckhart, who leads Melbourne University's Primary Industries Climate Challenge Centre. Nine to one here on the Country Hour. Francis Hoyle is the Director of Soils West, an independent body involved in soil research across WA's grains industry. It looks at ways to improve the profitability of soil and the soil itself. And she agrees with what Professor Eckhart says about it being really difficult to improve the carbon content of sandy soils, which is so prevalent across WA's grain farms. So the past studies that we've been involved with have looked at long-term trials and looked at spatial changes in carbon associated with different farming systems. It is influenced by soil types. So in our sandier soils, we find that it's more challenging than in our loamier soils to build soil organic carbon. And that's because in those sandy soils, they don't have the clay content within them to protect the organic matter physically um, from microbial decomposition. So it is able to be done but it's a decadal process. It's a long-term process that requires 
more frequent high levels of organic matter input and farmers shouldn't be expecting to be able to change carbon levels quickly. You know, a decade or two down the track, they may find that they have some benefits. In your own research and in your own trials around WA, have there been any exceptions to those rules or is it as simple as to say sandy soils just can't sustainably hold as much carbon as we might like them to? No, we definitely have had exceptions. We were involved with a long-term trial that the Levy Group ran in Buntine and that trial was implemented to try and determine to what point we could build soil organic carbon in those very sandy soils. So it was a strategy where we weren't implementing management systems that a grower might employ on a normal year-to-year basis. But in that trial, over the last 13 years, every year or every third year, we were putting in an additional 20 tonnes of organic matter. So we put it in as an additional chaff substrate addition, as well as the crop residue. So every third year, we'd get 20 tonnes. After having put on 100 tonnes of that organic matter, and going back and remeasuring what remains in that soil, we have about 15% of the carbon that we've put into that system still able to be measured in that soil. What we don't know in that system is how long that carbon will remain there if we don't keep adding organic matter frequently. So organic matter is a food substrate for microorganisms and they consume it in terms of turning it over, decomposing that organic matter And that's a normal biological process. So we expect that to continue. So if we didn't continue to add larger, more frequent additions of organic matter, those soils would likely still degrade their carbon banks. And so what sort of things are you looking at at the present in terms of best management policies for that kind of soil? What should farmers be doing? So I guess some of the things that farmers can consider and implement and lots of growers are already considering, they've considered soil organic matter for a long time because they know it's part of their nutrient supply when it comes to their crops. But things like um, minimum tillage, even controlled traffic where you're retaining the physical structure of the soil, things like retaining stubble, cutting at a higher height, anything to keep the organic matter into the soil and to minimise the disruption of the soil can help to stabilise the inputs that you've put in there. It's still very much a soil where there needs to be biological function and activity and in having that, that will mean that that carbon continues to break down, but it may mean that it is a little more stable than it would otherwise be. So things like pasture phases coming into cropping systems could be a really great tool for growers. They just need to work around how that fits into a profitable farming system for them. Frances Hoyle, she's the Director of Soils West and Associate Professor of Soil Science at Murdoch University and she was speaking to Angus McIntosh. Five to one, and if you want to find out more about carbon farming opportunities in WA, there is a new online resource that's just become available. It's been developed by WA's Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development, so DPIRD, and it's a couple of templates that are really important for planning carbon farming investments. One is for land management strategy, and the other is for vegetation projects. And DPIRD's low-carbon Carbon Futures Manager Kerry House says the templates are a great resource for those taking the first steps to establish a carbon farming project and developing a funding application for round two 
of the Carbon Farming and Land Restoration Program. If you want to apply for a Carbon for Farmers voucher worth up to $10,000, you better get in quick because you only have until 5 o'clock on Friday, April the 1st. For more information about how to apply for a voucher or access DPIRD's free land management strategy templates, just do a search for DPIRD and carbon, and that should get you to the right page on the DPIRD website. Four minutes to one, and off to the markets now. There was a cattle sale at Muche today. 1,196 head of cattle were yarded. That's up 382 on last week's numbers. Tracy Kilner's been at the sale all morning. Tracy, what were the prices like today? Well, prices fluctuated with quality, generally trending up on most categories. The cows gained with an excellent quality yarding, while bulls dominated the um, the numbers, generally gaining with demand. The local bred Vila steers sold for five twenty eight to seven hundred and twenty four cents a kilo, while Vila heifers made from four fifty to six hundred and twenty cents. Yearling steers sold from 518 to 582 cents to feeders and pastoral steers returned 315 to 505 cents. Yearling heifers returned 398 to 552 cents for the local bread lines and from 330 to 470 for pastoral heifers. Grown steers, including pastoral cattle, fluctuated with quality. Steers weighing under 500 kilos sold for 300 to 500 cents. 500 to 600 kilo weight steers sold at 400 to 498 cents and bullocks weighing over 600 kilos returned 320 to 398 cents a kilo. Grown heifers weighing under 540 kilos made 382 to 468 cents while the heavier weights sold for 378 cents a kilo. Heavy prime cows finished up 12 cents selling at 320 to 376 cents to processors. Medium weight cows sold from 300 to 394 cents to the processors and up to 396 cents to feeder buyers. Store cows made from 300 to 360 cents. Heavy bulls sold from 320 to 396 cents. Medium weights returned 306 to 412 cents. And the lightweight bullies sold from 320 to 600 cents a kilo, depending on weights and quality. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you so much for going through those details this afternoon. Back to Mushade tomorrow. Tracy will be there again and she'll be going through the yarding and prices at the sheep market for you tomorrow. It's about a minute away from the news at one o'clock. Thousands of hectares of land have been burned during the recent WA fires, with devastating losses of livestock, sheds, machinery, houses and, of course, fences. BlazeAid is here to help. They've set up camps in the southwest and Wheatbelt and they need your help to rebuild the more than 500 kilometres of fencing that needs to be cleared and rebuilt. And not just fencing, there are lots of other ways to help at the camps. For more information on how to volunteer, register for assistance or donate, visit blazeaid.com.au. And here in WA, Southwest Blazeaid volunteers have cleared more than 11 kilometres of land and rebuilt about 14 kilometres of fence line. The clean-up operation at Bridgetown comes after the fires near Hester in early February, and the volunteers are now off to the Denmark region next. Really good to catch up with you here on the Country Hour this afternoon. Time now for the news, one o'clock. 
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.